Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word of the Lord. Every day you walk out your front door and you have to make decisions about how you're going to live. Here's the question. How do you decide? Because there is no shortage of scripts that are constantly being urged upon you. You know what I mean by a script. Every movie or play has a script. That's, um, there's a list of characters, and the script says, here's what each character says. Here's what each character does. There is no shortage in this world. This world is full of people and books and movies and songs and marketing firms and corporations and political parties and ideologies and philosophies and all kinds of other things that are constantly trying to put a script in your hand and say, this is how you should live. And here's the thing. Every script presupposes a story, a story that says, this is the meaning of life. This is the purpose of life. Here's what really matters in life. So even people that say, look, there really is no story, will turn around and say, therefore, you just gotta dot, dot, dot. Or what really matters in life is dot, dot, dot. And whatever's on the other side of that dot, 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 that's a script. And every script presupposes a story. So, for instance, I was reading this last week an interview with a cognitive scientist named Lori Santos. She is a, uh, a professor at Yale University. She teaches uh, a class called Psychology and the Good Life. And she's actually known as the happiness professor. Her class is one of the most popular classes on campus, especially among students uh, with rising rates of anxiety. Um, and in the interview, she says that um, she's done a lot of research, and her findings show that happiness 
uh, actually is not increased by getting good grades so you can get a high-paying job and earn a lot of accolades in the world. In fact, the opposite. And towards the end of the interview, she says that a lot of students question her on this, and they say, well, look, if that's not the point of college, then what is the purpose of life? And the interviewer, I love that they do this, they, they pick up on this and they, they ask her at the end of the interview, okay, Lori Santos, professor of happiness, what is the purpose of life? And here's what she says. It's smelling your coffee in the morning, loving your kids, having sex and daisies and springtime. It's all the good things in life. That's what it is. Now, Lori Santos isn't here. We can't have a dialogue about this with her. And I'm not, my point is not to say whether or not this is true. In fact, I think there's a lot of really lovely things in here because God gave us creation to be enjoyed. But when I look at this, it sounds to me like she's saying that the real purpose in life is to enjoy the things of this world today and that there is no bigger story or meaning. Here's the point. That is a script. And every script presupposes a story. Or we could say it like this, you can't know how to live unless you know what kind of a story you're in. You can't know how to live unless you know what kind of a story you're in. So you're going to live your life according to some story, some narrative that says, here's how things really are. So the question is, what kind of story are we in? We're beginning a series this morning on Romans chapters 5 through 8. These are some of the most famous chapters in the Bible. Um, and it's all about finding the life that's really living by finding new life in Christ. Now, this passage we just read is introduction. Paul is laying out the roadmap for where he's going to go in the next several chapters. So this morning, in many ways, is really an introduction, but it's also an invitation because Paul is inviting us into a story. You can't know how to live unless you know what kind of story you're in. What kind of story you're in? What kind of story is Paul inviting us into? Let's find out by getting an overview of the map by seeing three big things about this story. Paul shows us there's a future glory, there's a present struggle, and there's an empowering love. Okay? A future glory, a present struggle, and empowering love. Okay? So let's begin by looking at this future glory. Paul begins this passage by saying, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, he's summarizing the first four chapters of Romans. In the first four chapters of the book of Romans, Paul, um, he basically takes the traditional uh, religious script and he turns it on its head. The traditional religious script says that if you live a good life, God will love you. The gospel takes that script and turns it on its head and says, no, you don't earn or perform your way into God's love. Um, God's love comes to you by grace through faith in Christ. That doesn't mean that you can just live however you want. And we're going to see that big time when we get to chapter 6. But Paul is offering us a new script here. He's saying that God's love for you is not based on your moral or religious performance. It's based on grace through faith in Christ. And then in this passage, he, he just starts walking through the benefits of this. He says that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So he's saying, hey, we have peace, we have access to God, we have grace with God all through faith in Christ. But then Paul drops a bombshell. 
He says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And with that statement, this is really like a mic drop statement from Paul. It's kind of hard for us to understand just how mind-blowing this is. But, but Paul is, it's, this is such an astounding statement. And here's why. First, this word glory in the Hebrew, originally, the word literally means weight or heaviness. Maybe the best English synonym for this word would be our English word matter. Because the more physical matter something has, the, the heavier it is, the more it weighs, then the more it matters the more significance it has. To, to have glory is to be real, like solid and real. And the more real something is, the more valuable and significant and worthwhile it is, the more glory it has. So it's kind of like, imagine a pond of water with a surface smooth as glass. And if you were to drop a feather on the surface of that water, bloink, it would barely cause a ripple. But if you were, because it doesn't weigh that much, but if you were to take a boulder and drop that on a pond, there would be water sloshing around all over the place because a boulder weighs a lot more than a feather. In other words, it has more glory. Now, here's the really amazing thing about what Paul is saying here. When he says we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, it would be natural for us to think, oh, Paul's saying that that means we're going to experience God's glory. And it does mean that. But it also means a lot more than that. If you were to go back to Romans chapter 3, in verse 23, Paul says, all human beings have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. He's saying that human beings weren't only created to experience God's glory, but to share God's glory. So for instance, in Genesis 1, it says, every human being was created in the image of God. We were created to share in God's glory. That means that to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God doesn't only mean that one day we get to experience God's glory, although we will. It means that we were created and one day will share in God's glory. In fact, um, we're going to see when we get to Romans chapter 8 that Paul continues to talk about this at length. But let me just give you a little sneak preview uh, this week, in Romans 8.21, Paul talks about the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In verse 30, he says that those whom God justified, he also glorified. The Bible is full of passages like this. We could go on and on, but here's what this means for us today. Think about your own longings for glory. In other words, every single human being longs to know that you matter. You want to know that you matter. And in addition to those longings to matter, where all of our lives are filled with questions and doubts, we are, we're constantly worrying and asking ourselves, do I matter? Do I really matter? How do I know that I matter? But even your doubts and your questions about that are evidence that you were created for glory. You were created to matter. And your doubts, your questions, you wouldn't even doubt or question that unless you were actually created for it. This is one of the deepest longings in every human heart. For instance, there was a movie uh, last year called Soul. Great movie. Um, Jamie Foxx plays, or really he's the voice of this character, Joe Gardner, who's a musician. And for Joe Gardner, there's nothing he wants more in the world to play than to play jazz with the very best. Instead, Joe Gardner teaches high school band. 
and not even a very good band. But one day, he gets an opportunity to play a gig with one of the most famous jazz musicians in the world. But before he can get to the gig, he falls into an empty manhole and dies. And that all happens in the first five minutes, so I'm not really spoiling too much. But while he's in the great beyond, he meets a disembodied soul named 22, who's actually the voice of Tina Fey, and, and she agrees to help Joe get back to earth so he can get back in his body and play the gig. But the only way they can do that is if Joe also helps 22 to find her spark. What's the spark? That's the big question of the movie. What is your spark? They assume that your spark is like, it's like your thing. It's like your great purpose in life. For Joe, it's playing jazz, but it could be anything. It could be psychology, or being a chef, or serving the poor, or archery, but whatever it is, um, your spark means, finding your spark means finding your great purpose in life, and then doing it with all your heart, and if you can do that, then you will know, finally know, that you matter. That is one of the most powerful narratives in our culture, and um, I'm not going to spoil the rest of the movie for you, but one of the things it does really well is question that narrative by showing us that you can get so obsessed with finding your spark, finding your purpose, that it actually disconnects you from life. But here's the point. The reason we long for that is because we were created for it. Paul says one day it will be yours. You will not just experience God's glory, you will share God's glory. You will know finally and irrevocably that you matter and nothing can take that away from you. There is a future glory towards which and for which we hope in this story. But that leads to the second thing Paul shows us. Not only is there a future glory, there's also a present struggle. Remember, Paul is... Um, rehearsing all the benefits of faith in Christ. We have peace and access to God and grace in God, and we have the hope of glory. But then Paul moves from this mic drop statement to a train wreck, because the next thing he says is not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. How can he say that? We rejoice in our sufferings? Well, notice what he goes on to say. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. In other words, the suffering all ends up leading back to this hope that Paul is talking about. It's kind of like, you know, if you're playing chess against a chess master, not that any of us have ever had that experience, but if you were, you know that um, no matter how many brilliant moves you make, no matter what you do, the chess master is going to use all of it to win the game. In the same way, God is like the ultimate chess master. He's able to take anything you throw at him, even suffering, and use it to transform you more and more into a person of glory. Paul says we rejoice in that, which is really hard, really counterintuitive for us in our culture, because we think, well, you can either have joy or you can have suffering, but you can't have both of those things together at the same time. And the reason is because in our culture, joy is completely tied to our circumstances. So for instance, about 10 years ago, the New York Times put together, they surveyed a bunch of authors and books and websites, and they put together what they call the, um, the fundamentally sound, surefire top five components of happiness. Oh, did you want to know what they are? 
Uh, Number one, possession of the basics. That means food, shelter, health, and safety, which means we just eliminated like 99% of the world's population from happiness. But let's keep going. Number two, get enough sleep, which means we just eliminated the rest of us. (laughs) But whatever. Number three, relationships that matter. Number four, have compassionate care for others and for yourself. And number five, have uh, some work or an interest that really engages you. Now, some of you are fortunate enough to have maybe one or two of these things in your life. But if your ultimate joy is tied to any of these things, then what happens to your joy when something happens to these things? Our culture's story about joy and happiness says that it's completely tied to circumstances. But Paul is saying that there's a joy available to you as a Christian that not only is not hindered by suffering, it's actually increased by suffering. Why? It's because Paul is inviting us into a story in which death plays a central role. And we're going to explore more about what that means in the weeks to come. But the heartbeat of the Christian story says that new life, real life, the kind of life that's really living, new life comes out of death. And we see that all through this passage. Specifically, this new life comes out of the death of Christ. So look at what Paul says. It's like um, hammer strokes. He keeps saying Christ died for the ungodly. In verse uh, 8, Christ died for us. In verse 9, he says, we have now been justified by his blood. In verse 10, we are reconciled to God by the death of his sons. Paul is his son. Death, Paul is inviting us into a story that says that new life comes through death. And what is suffering but a kind of death? And yet Paul says the Christian story means that, that death always needs Uh, leads to new life. And that, again, is so counterintuitive and countercultural for us. But if we are able to get through the the bitterness on the outside of this story, there is a beauty waiting for us on the inside of this story. For instance, Dua Lipa is an English singer-songwriter who also started a podcast recently. She was on the Stephen Colbert show, uh, Late Night with Stephen Colbert, recently. And Stephen Colbert said, hey, you started a podcast Um, why don't I give you an opportunity to practice your interview skills and have you ask me a question? And so she says, oh, okay. Um, You know, you're very open about the role that faith plays in your life. I'm wondering, um, is there any overlap between your faith and your comedy? And Stephen Colbert says, well, I'm a Christian, uh, which means that that's connected to this idea that love and sacrifice are somehow belong together, and the idea that, that death is not defeat. And when he says death is not defeat, the camera pans back over to Dua Lipa, and man, I would love to know what's going on in her mind at that moment, but you can just see by her body language, instead of leaning in and smiling, she, her eyebrows kind of go up, and she's kind of like, all right, tell me more. But Stephen Colbert goes on to say that, that um, if we can learn to laugh, at death and sorrow and suffering, that that's a way of of, um, not letting evil co-opt us into more evil. So he actually quotes Robert Hayden. Uh, Robert Hayden was one of the greatest poets of the 20th century um, and the first African-American to be the U.S. Poet Laureate, which is a really big deal. But Colbert quotes 
Um, Robert Hayden says, we must not be frightened nor cajoled into accepting evil as deliverance from evil. We must go on struggling to be human, though monsters of abstraction police and threaten us. And Colbert brings it all together to say this. He says, if there's some overlap between my faith and comedy, it's that no matter what happens, you are never defeated. You must always learn to see this in the light of eternity and find some way to love and laugh with each other. That is a beautiful example of what it means to rejoice in our sufferings. Death is not defeat. In fact, you know, one of the other things Colbert is really known for is he's a huge fan of J.R.R. Tolkien. When he says death is not defeat, I would be willing to bet a pound of freshly roasted coffee beans that he's probably thinking about a very famous essay that, uh, that Tolkien wrote um, on fairy stories. In that essay, Tolkien talks about something he calls eucatastrophe. Now, we all know what a catastrophe is, but that little prefix EU means good. It's a way of talking about a good catastrophe. What's a good catastrophe? Tolkien says that the very best stories always have a good catastrophe in them. That's a, a miraculous turn of events in which evil is, is suddenly turned on its head. And it's more than just a happy ending. Here's what he says. Tolkien says, it does not deny the existence of sorrow and failure. It denies universal final defeat and insofar as evangelium or good news, giving a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant is grief. Tolkien is saying that, that the stories that, that have a good catastrophe in them like this are always pointing back to the Christian story, which is the only story in the world that is able to take the real death, the real suffering, the real horrors of this world and use all of them to transform you into a person of even greater glory than you ever would have been otherwise. Friends, suffering is not an obstacle to your glory. It's an ingredient in it. Suffering is not an obstacle to your glory. It's an ingredient in it. And that leads to our last point. Paul has shown us there's a future glory. He's shown us there's a present struggle. But lastly, he shows us an empowering love. Because here's the thing, you know, it's great that we have this future glory we can look forward to, and it's also very encouraging to know that, um, that even suffering can be an ingredient in that glory. But when you're in the midst of the dark wood, so to speak, when you're in the midst of the most painful part of the story, you need something that will help you through. Paul says that's what the Holy Spirit is for. So you notice in the passage, he's talking about suffering, and he's talking about suffering leading to endurance, and endurance leads to character, and all of that leads back to hope. But then he says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul is talking here about the basic role of the Holy Spirit. The basic role of the Holy Spirit in, in the life of the Christian is to make Jesus more real to you. The basic role of the Holy Spirit is to make Jesus more real to you. And he does that in two primary ways. There's an objective reality and there's a subjective experience. Let me explain what that means, okay? The first way the Holy Spirit makes Jesus real to you is, is by helping you see the objective reality of what Jesus has done for you. For instance, there is a lot of really challenging language in this passage, especially for our culture. 
You notice Paul says that while we human beings were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Not very flattering, but it gets worse from there. He says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then as if that weren't bad enough, he says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. This is hard language for us. I talk to people all the time who say, man, this is ridiculous. I'm not an enemy of God. I'm not opposed to God. Especially if you're exploring faith, this is one of the hardest things about Christianity. But let me ask you a question. Um, Do you believe that we should all be free to live however we want, that nobody should tell us how to live? It's okay to say yes. Because guess what? Congratulations, you are a modern Western person. We all believe this to some extent. It's one of the, the most, again, one of the most powerful narratives in our culture. Everybody should be free to live however they want. But here's the question. Um, when we say we should all be free to live however we want without anybody telling us how to live, does that include God? In other words, do you think it's possible that if there is a God, that, that, that God might be looking at things in your life and might say, I would prefer things to be otherwise? What do we call someone who says, well, God, I don't care what you think. I want to live however I want. We could play word games with with this. We could sugarcoat it, or we could just call it what Paul calls it. That's an enemy. That's a rebel. (laughs) But here's the thing. Have you ever had an experience in your life when you realized that there were things in your life that actually needed to change? For, For one moment of clarity, you realized that there was something or maybe multiple things in your life that could not go on the way they are. What do you do with that? There's a famous poet named Rainer Maria Rilke who once wrote a poem about this. He was looking at a headless statue of the Greek god Apollo, and it was such a powerful experience that he wrote a very famous poem about it. He said that when he was looking at this statue, that it was so brilliant and powerful and dazzling and translucent that when he was in the presence of this work of art, that it it was almost as if he wasn't looking at the art. The art was looking at him inspecting him, weighing him. (laughs) So the very uh, last line of the poem famously says, here in the presence of this statue, there is no place that does not see you. You must change your life. Listen, if, if the glory and beauty of a piece of art could have that kind of effect, could produce that kind of inner conviction in somebody, How much more when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to the glory of God inspecting you, weighing you, and revealing to you the true state of your own life, saying you must change. Friends, the amazing thing about the gospel is that instead of demanding that you change your life first before God can welcome you into his presence, the gospel says that before any of that, Jesus already did everything necessary to make peace for you with God through his death on the cross, that he reconciled you to God through his death on the cross. That is an objective reality. In other words, it doesn't depend on how you feel about it. It's something that Jesus has done independently of you. He's done it for you. The first work of the Holy Spirit in your life is to take that objective reality and make it real to you, to make it um, compel your heart 
But the, but the second thing is we need more than this because we need more than just a knowledge of the objective reality of what Jesus has done for us. We need a subjective experience of that love of God in our life. And that's the second thing, the second way the Holy Spirit makes Jesus real to us. In fact, Jesus talks about this in his, one of his most famous parables on the prodigal son. Many of you may be familiar with the story. It's all about a son who hates his dad, runs away, ends up in a pigsty, and then decides to come back home. And while he's still far off on the outskirts of the city, the father sees him, and he comes running to the son, and he wraps his arms around him in a big hug, and then just kisses him up and down. Let me ask you a question. Um, what if, instead of the father running out and hugging the son like that, what if the father had instead just let the son walk back home, come into the house, take a seat at the table, and, and the father would have said to the son, in front of everybody, son, we missed you, I love you, I'm so glad you're back, welcome home. If the father had done it that way, do you think that the son would have been any less the son of the father? Of course not. Do you think the son would have known, objectively speaking, that he had been welcomed back into the family and into the love of his father? Of course he would. So why does the father not do it that way? The, re the answer is because there's a huge difference between knowing somebody loves you and getting a hug. The, the, the answer is that because there's a huge difference between having a wise, sagacious, insightful knowledge about something and having a subjective experience of it. The work of the Holy Spirit is to take the objective reality of what Jesus has done for you and make that subjectively real to your heart. And technically speaking, you don't do, I don't do, we don't do anything to make that happen. And yet, the more you make yourself available to God, the more you... Um, uh, spend time with God. It's just like any other relationship. It, it won't grow unless you actually show up. It won't grow unless you're present for the relationship. Now, I'm not going to tell you this morning, at least, what that needs to look like or ought to look like in your life. We'll talk more about this in the weeks to come. But this week, I want to encourage you. Um, maybe you just take some time to spend alone with God, just to be with God, no agenda, just to be with God and say, God, I'm here. I, I, I want to just be with you. And then also maybe take some of that time to ask God to show you what kind of story am I living in? Because it's one thing to say, well, here's the story I believe. Here's the story I live in. But it's another thing. Ask God to show you not just the story you're living in, but, but to help you be honest about the script you're following. Because we can say we believe in one story, but the script you follow shows us the story you really believe in. That's what are you doing? What are your habits? How are you living? Their script shows you the story you're really living. Ask God to help you see the story you're living by, by helping you to be honest about the script you're following in life. Friends, you were created for glory. The reason we long for that the reason we long to matter is, we, is because we were created for it. And the wonderful thing about the gospel is that God is like the ultimate chess master who's able to use everything, everything, to turn you more and more into the person of glory that he created you to be, even your sufferings. Suffering is not an obstacle to glory. It's an ingredient in it. Friends, take time to be with God this week. Consider the story you're living in and consider what it would be like to more and more take your place in this story.
Would you pray with me? Abba, we praise you. We thank you. We love you. And we thank you this morning for um, either introducing us to this story for the first time or maybe helping us um, kind of get a vision that we've lost for what this story is really about. Lord, for all of us, I pray that you would help us um, not just to understand the objective reality of what Jesus has done for us, but through the grace and the work of your Holy Spirit, make that objective reality more subjectively real to our hearts. Father, help us to feel your arms wrapped around us this morning so that we could um, understand and realize and embrace the reality that death is not defeat, that suffering is not an obstacle to our glory, but an ingredient in it, and to look forward to the future glory you've promised us by being faithful in the midst of the struggle today, Father, for we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.